0: Good evening. Ah, uh, you know where I'm going to go for number two, right? Good evening. Good evening. Much, much better. You know, I was uh, watching uh, Alfred Hitchcock Presents on one of those old channels the other day, and I realized he started every one of his shows like that. Good evening. So here we are this evening. We're in First uh, Peter chapter 2. You can turn with me in your Bibles to First Peter chapter 2. And we are in verse 18, 1 Peter 2, 18. And we have been uh, breaking this down verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And uh, as you know, we have been looking at submission, the subject of submitting in Christ, submission in Christ. And we first looked at submitting to our authority as it relates to submitting to the government, which was a hot topic uh, last week. But uh, we tried to put a balanced biblical perspective on you know, when it's appropriate to enter into civil disobedience, when it's not, and uh, how we are generally supposed to look to be good citizens, not revolutionaries. And so that was last week's study. Now we're going to continue on that subject of submission, uh, submission in Christ. And, and this is an interesting timing for me, uh, because I just last night watched uh, Harriet, the story of Harriet Tubman. And uh, I didn't know what to expect, to be honest with you. I had my concerns that it wouldn't be handled appropriately or it wouldn't be handled uh, historically. But I want to assure you it was handled very well. It was a very interesting movie and very inspirational. And I've always uh, appreciated and been inspired by the Underground Railroad to have learned some more about it and to have seen a fictional, not fictional, but a dramatization of an actual historical person, was was really uh, inspiring, quite frankly. But the timing couldn't be better because now I'm going to be teaching, we're going to be studying together, submitting to masters. And it's interesting because in the film I noticed that some of the, uh, well, one of the pastors that was an African-American pastor was ministering to the slaves, and actually to the slave masters as well, and uh, he was saying all the right things from the Bible. But then you find out he's working alongside these individuals to abolish slavery and free slaves but it's it's interesting because this evening as we get into this we can look at it from the standpoint of our employers you know not that we're slaves far from it maybe you feel like one sometimes but you're not a slave uh, you you have a choice you you can you can quit but you know there are people today that are slaves they're enslaved human trafficking is i don't i don't I mean that's another whole topic but human trafficking makes slaves of people in this country. I was just reading an article about how people are brought into this country by the cartels. They put on GPS bracelets. This is how high-tech this stuff is. And they monitor their whereabouts or whether they break contact. And they track them down so that over their lifetime, which is probably a long time, they have to pay back their debt to the cartels. So they're actually... They're slave owners of the cartels. They're working in our country in the agricultural fields... Um, and, the, uh, and, and they're doing all of the things that they can do, some, sometimes legally, sometimes illegally, and all the money that they make, most of it, goes to their slave owners, who are cartels. There's also, uh, you know, slavery throughout the world. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with certain governments that, that treat their citizens as slaves, and there's slavery that's taken place over the world throughout the centuries, uh, Darker colored people enslaved, darker colored people, and lighter colored people enslaved, lighter colored people. The slavery that was brought to Africa was already in Africa, and the slavery that was brought there was already in Europe. So it is a a thing that has pretty much always existed, which doesn't discount the, the horrors of slavery in our country. I'm just saying that slavery has been a part of our world pretty much since the beginning of time. And in the Roman world, slavery was a reality, It wasn't a pleasant reality. It's not something any of the biblical writers endorsed or condoned. They worked within the confines of their society to reach their society for Christ. It doesn't mean that I I or anyone here or really anyone of God's people really endorses slavery or considers it an acceptable form of uh, control, but, but it's a reality, And so, as Peter, and as Paul also, as the Gospel writers talk about slavery, they never endorse it, they never condone it, but they don't openly come out against it. And you might wonder why. For one thing, it would have been incredibly dangerous for them to make that move. It also would have shut all of the doors to ministry. Uh, As we talked about last week, they weren't called to create a slave rebellion. The Roman world is very concerned that Christians might break up families, because Rome was all about order, They didn't want the the Christians breaking up families, freeing slaves, or overthrowing the government. And so you'll notice in Paul's writings and Peter's writings, and especially in this epistle, that they're very careful, because this was public information, this was a public letter, uh, to, to not do those things. They would have endangered the people that received these letters and read these letters and had these letters in their possession. That was a separate issue. That's all I'm saying. So, with that as our background, let's pray. Let's get into this, and we'll see that what Peter really wants them to understand, and Paul did this as well, is that you really should, as much as is, as is possible under these circumstances, submit to your master as a slave. And that's the only message that's being given, and it has to do with reaching them with the gospel that is, their masters and their society and their culture. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord. We know that this is a delicate topic, especially over this last year especially in our country right now, especially when revisionist history has told us that somehow white people were responsible for slavery, when we know it's, there were evil people responsible for slavery, white and black. And there were white and black people and all types of minorities and others enslaved over the centuries. It's not a racial issue. It's an issue of justice. And we acknowledge that. And we pray that every person that's enslaved in one way or another would be freed, We look forward to that day when you come to free all the captives. But for tonight, Lord, may we study this from a historical context and have the perspective of maybe how we can apply it to our authority, whether it be at work or in school or in our families, especially when those authorities over us are ungodly and maybe even abusive. So we ask for your help, your wisdom, your knowledge to understand all things and that you would speak to our hearts in Jesus name we pray amen okay that's my upfront disclaimer so that we can take on this topic from a proper perspective without anybody having like you know an edge going into this topic you know thinking oh what's pastor Tim saying is he promoting slavery not at all and peter wasn't either you see we are to submit to masters if we're slaves and again i don't think any of us here are slaves but As slaves, they were to submit to their masters. And the first reason is this. They did this. They were supposed to do this because they were conscious of God. We submit because we're conscious of God. We're aware of God. All right? And this is what we read in verses 18 through 20 of chapter 2 in 1 Peter. Slaves, or servants, slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it, to your credit, if you receive a beating for doing something or doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. Now think about the reality for a minute. Slaves are coming into the church. Some of them Leaders in the church. And these slaves are trying to navigate this very narrow road between being a slave, being property owned by someone else, and also understanding what it is to belong to Christ and to have a calling on their lives to serve others. It's a tough balance. And, and, and this, they needed teaching from Peter and Paul and others to, to navigate these, these challenging shores. But the first thing he makes mention of here is that slaves should obey their masters as they would obey the Lord. We can apply that to us in our employment. We should obey our authority as serving the Lord. You see, what we learn here in the very first section, submit yourselves, excuse me, slaves submit yourselves to your masters with all respect. First thing you have to recognize is they were slaves. There may have been as many as 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire at this time. So you can imagine why a slave revolt, well, it it wouldn't have ended well. Any of you remember Spartacus or Kirk Douglas, you'll remember how that movie ended. But history tells us that there were slave rebellions in the Roman Empire. It caused a lot of uh, instability in their culture. And uh, I'm not going to weigh in on whether it was good or bad. Just That wasn't the point of sharing the gospel. The social justice movement came second to sharing the gospel within the confines of what was a decadent and wicked society. And we need to remember that. Imagine growing up in the Soviet Union or the former Soviet Union. How would you have shared the gospel? Or imagine being in Iran right now, which is where they tell me the fastest-growing church exists, the, the Islamic Republic. I, I read it in an article the other day that said that it suggested that the Islamic Revolution of 1979 and uh, Ayatollah Khomeini, that that this man and these Ayatollahs are possibly responsible for more Christians becoming Christians than anyone else in the last century because of the wicked they did. That more people, because of their wickedness, turned to Christ and are turning to Christ in Iran, which is, I think everyone could agree, there are probably just a few places on earth you know, if you, the, we could call the worst places to, to live. North Korea is probably at the top of the list, right? But I think Iran might be in the top five, maybe the top three. So imagine that, what God can do. That's the point. Get a perspective on the gospel that is separate from social justice. Not that social justice isn't important. Indeed it is. It's just, it needs to be a separate issue if the social justice movement's going to get in the way of sharing the gospel gospel comes first. There are people that have allowed themselves to be imprisoned in some of these countries just to reach those who are imprisoned for Christ. So think about that for a minute. It's about the gospel. It's about preaching the gospel. So there may have been as many as 60 million slaves, and it was the duty of every slave under that society's rules to obey their master, but respect is a matter of the heart. And what Peter wants them to understand is, look, he says, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect. See, submit wasn't a choice. Respect was. Respect was a choice. And and, and at your jobs and in your professions, submit and respect are two different issues. Respect is a matter of the heart. It's not just eye service, pretending to work hard or an attempt at selfish gain. They should serve in the same way with the same heart as they would serve the Lord. That's the message. Doing your very best at your earthly work is honoring to your heavenly father, even if you're enslaved. That's, that's a kind of a tough pill to swallow, to be honest with you. I hear that coming out of my mouth, and I think, I don't know, that, that, that kind of rubs me the wrong way. But it's still true. And that's what Peter wants us to understand. Doing your very best at your earthly work is honoring your heavenly father. Now, slaves should never obey masters that would force them to disobey God or sin. We're not even suggesting those things. But they may, may very well give their lives for their faith like any other Christian martyr we've talked about in this series of studies and other studies. We're not even suggesting that. But as much as possible, they're supposed to certainly submit. And we're told, we know, that the Lord will reward our service to him based on our motives, not our status. He looks at the heart. Man looks at the outward. God looks at the heart. That's what Samuel explained to David's dad. So, so let's understand something. You might be doing all the right things. You might be saying all the right things. But in your heart, what is your heart toward your authority? Whatever that authority may be. Even for slaves, they needed to have the right heart. How else could they have reached them for Christ if they didn't show them a modicum of respect? as their authority. How could they? They they wouldn't have. Now, one thing that Paul made clear and that Peter echoes is that slaves are free in Christ. In Christ they're free. But free men are Christ's slaves. So whether you're free in this world at this time that this is being written or you're a slave, you understand a degree of slavery, you understand servanthood and you understand a degree of freedom and they needed to navigate the shores accordingly. They needed to be content where they were placed to do the most amount of good they could under the circumstances they were born into. Now, even if their masters don't reward or recognize their slaves, God certainly would, and God will recognize us. Paul instructs these uh, Gentile slaves to faithfully serve their masters, and so does Peter. In serving their masters, they are actually serving the Lord, and they will certainly have to give an account to the Lord for how they served. You know, you'll have to give an account to the Lord for how you serve. Not just how you serve at work, but to one another. Serve within the church. Serve those in authority. We're accountable to the Lord for how we serve our employers. And it's good to remember that. You should never really go home feeling like you got one over on your boss or left early or punched out early or you know, or cheating or stealing, it, it, that should never be a part of our character. But let's be honest, masters did not always treat their slaves well, or even with consideration. That's alluded to here. Notice it's not, it's not highlighted, but it's, it's said when he says, not only to masters, or submit yourselves with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh also to those who are harsh. That's very difficult, isn't it? To submit yourself. uh, Maybe you're under the authority of your parents, and maybe your parents were and continue to be harsh with you. Maybe your boss is really harsh with you. Maybe your authority is harsh. If you're in the armed forces, (laughs) that might be a challenge. You know, it it, it might be that you have to submit to a, a harsh and inconsiderate authority, like some of the slaves. Many of the slaves did. Not all, but many of them did. And I'm talking about slaves in the Roman Empire. That was true of American slavery, but still, let's be clear. There's there's not one thing I can say about slavery in America or anywhere else at any time that I would endorse or say was good, okay? That's not what I'm saying. But there were those that were considerate and those that were inconsiderate. There were those that were kind. uh, But how kind can you be to someone when you treat them as property? That in and of itself is a gross unkindness, okay? So let's be clear. But in either case, he makes this point. Because the masters did not always treat their slaves well or with consideration. In fact, they were certainly not required to be respectful to their slaves in the ancient world. They sometimes treated them harshly or unjustly. They often disciplined them with threats of punishment, violence, and death. And still, the command is the same, to show them respect and to submit. Now, you can see why a free person, a Roman, a Gentile, even a slave owner would hear that and say, oh... Well, the gospel's not looking to turn our world upside down in that way. But at the same time, I wonder what happens to the heart of a man or a woman who is a slave owner, who gives their heart to Christ. In that instance, that person's heart is now changed, and you begin to open up the door for people to change, and their hearts to change, and ultimately, that's what changes things like slavery in our world, when individuals' hearts change then our society changes. And as I said, watching that movie about Harriet Tubman, I I realized there were many, many people alive at that time in the 1800s, mid-1800s to late 1800s, who were very committed to the abolishing of slavery, willing to lay down their lives and die in a civil war to abolish slavery in our country. So all of that helps me to understand there may be a time where those things have to happen. But in the first century, it was about reaching people's hearts for Christ. Now, Paul and Peter both instructed Christian masters to treat their slaves with decency and respect, just to be clear. While they didn't try or make their agenda to abolish slavery, though I'm sure they were against it, they did encourage their Christian masters to, those who were Christians and slave masters, to treat their slaves with decency and respect. They should fairly and adequately provide for their slaves. They they would have to give an account to the Lord for how they treated their slaves. And we are accountable to the Lord for how we treat our employees. So if you have employees, you own a business, or people work for you, same is true for you. You and I, we are accountable for how we treat others. Now, slaves are about to be commended. We've read it already in verses 19 through 20. They're going to be commended, and they are commended by Peter, for suffering unjustly. No one wants to suffer unjustly. No one should suffer unjustly, but people do, and especially the slaves of the first century, the Roman world. In fact, I'm going to read it again. Notice what he says in verse 19. He says, For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering. Notice, bears up under it. That doesn't mean that they welcome it or want it. Just bears up under it. The pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. He gets through it, God delivers him through it. He goes on to say, But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong? See, you can't say, Well, I'm a slave and they beat me. Well, meanwhile, you stole, meanwhile, you weren't working. That doesn't justify the beating, but it's not commendable before God either. If you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it, well, that's not to be commended, right? It's not to your credit. But if you suffer for doing uh, good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. In other words, you do the right thing, and if you suffer anyway unjustly, have you ever suffered unjustly? Probably none of us in this sanctuary today have suffered the way the Christians and even first-century slaves did, but... I'm sure you've had occasion to suffer unjustly. Things have happened, shouldn't have happened. Something happened that was you know, allowed to happen in your life that wasn't fair, right, or just, and you suffered for it. Well, what we're learning here is our appropriate response to that isn't vengeance. It isn't taking matters in our own hands. It's actually to bear up under it, which, if you remember, Peter has said a lot about already in this book. If I go back to the uh, very first chapter... He says, uh, though now you, in verse six, though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine, and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Jesus Christ is revealed. So this whole book, we'll get to the last section here uh, in this book, the last of the three sections, which is suffering in Christ. This book has to do with suffering because, as we've said already. The people of this area of the world in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, were suffering for being Christians, and certainly slaves were suffering more than freemen. so this is an encouragement to bear up under unjust suffering. Slaves were commended for enduring unjust suffering at the hands of their masters. They were able to submit because they knew that submission was pleasing to God, not unjust suffering. They were able to endure because they knew that God was pleased with them in their suffering, not pleased with them suffering. They would not be commended for enduring discipline that was deserved, of course, but they were commended for suffering unjustly. Now, we do this, that is, submit. We do this because we're conscious of God, but we also do this because we follow Christ's example, Or have we forgotten that not one of us has suffered unjustly to the same degree that Christ suffered? That's what Peter is about to tell us. Let's read it. Verses 21 through 23 in 1 Peter chapter 2. We read here, to this you were called. To what? To what? Let's back up a verse. But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you. See, unjust suffering is the path of the Christian evangelist, the Christian disciple, living in this world, unjust suffering. Of course, is it any surprise to anyone that the people groups like the Jews and the Christians throughout the centuries are often brought into situations where they suffer unjustly? Well, you know, the devil, I mean, it's not his world, it's God's world, but the devil's running it right now. And it should be no wonder that we suffer for Christ. So he says, to this you were called. You were called. Yeah, you're called as a Christian. You're called to a world that will persecute you. Jesus made this abundantly clear to us. And so did the early uh, church fathers. So did the writers of the New Testament. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. And when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. There is our example for suffering unjustly. It's Christ. It's not Paul. It's not Peter. It's Christ. It's Christ. Now, that changes things for me because there's no unjust suffering I could go through where I want to retaliate when I can say, well, yeah, God understands. Oh, God more than understands. He's given us an example. He lived through the greatest unjust suffering. And this is what we're going to be remembering. I don't want to say celebrating because that sounds weird. Remembering on Good Friday for our Good Friday service and into next week. We will be celebrating the fact that he's risen. He's risen indeed. Amen. So that, that's coming. But for now, we're also considering the truth that he suffered unjustly. And we know that. We're quite aware of that. Now, I want to point out something to you. Remember, we said we do this because we're conscious of God. We also do this because we follow Christ's example. The word in the original language for example there. Did you see that? We follow to this you recall because um, Christ suffered for you leaving you an example. You see that word example? Uh, It's really interesting because that word example refers specifically to a handwriting copper plate for children. It was a word that was used to describe a stencil made out of copper, a copper plate, that children would use to learn to write their letters. Now, maybe you had this when you were a kid. Maybe your kids have it. But there are these little stencils that they can trace the letter A and the letter B and they learn to write their letters rather large but they learn them by tracing the stencil it's called a copper plate and that's the word for example. So I get I guess you get the picture right? You're you're to follow very closely you're to trace out and follow Christ's example when you're suffering unjustly. I think that really makes it clear for me. Not easy, just clear. So we suffer for Christ just as he suffered for us. That's what we learn there. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Now, I could say a lot about this, and there's so much written in the New Testament about this, but we've been called to suffer as we live our lives for him. Peter made that clear in chapter 1. He'll go on to talk about that in chapter 5, so I'll leave that for a future study. But much of this book talks about that truth, that we've been called to suffer as we live our lives for him. You know, if you don't tell people that and then they suffer, that's kind of like a bait and switch, right? You know, I mean, if you tell, oh, everything's going to be great. Give your life to Christ. Everything will be perfect. And then it isn't because it isn't. And then people, "Hey, hey, whoa, what happened? You know, they feel ripped off. They feel deceived because you didn't give them the whole truth. It's not a popular truth. A lot of people don't want to give full disclosure that being a Christian will bring suffering in this world. But it's true. We have been called to suffer as we live our lives for others. (laughs) Not just for him, but for others. You you, you know, you could almost, almost accept uh, that you're going to suffer for Christ. But what happens when you're suffering for someone else? You know, I remember what my attitude used to be sometimes when I tried to help someone out and something just turned into a complete disaster of a day. I'd be like, why did I even get involved? And I used to say, no good deed goes unpunished. I used to say things like that. (laughs) Like last week. No, no, not in a while. But you do feel like that sometimes. Like, why did I help this person? I remember I had a friend, and and this friend, he was a good friend, but he he was a bit of a pain, I'm just going to be honest. One of those annoying people that every time you got involved, something went south. And, you know, he came over to visit. I was exhausted. I was doing all this stuff. And he came over unannounced. And, you know, it was one of these things. And, and then he got a flat tire going home. I had to get involved with that. The spare had a different sized rim for some reason. It was a classic car. Now I'm driving all over the place. I just want to go to sleep. And at that point, I'm like, why do I even have this guy as a friend? That was my heart. It was wrong. But that was my heart. You will suffer in this world for helping others. I remember how I felt when the plane landed in El Salvador and my luggage didn't for three days. I was good for two days. And then somehow the message got misconstrued that my luggage showed up. The real message was the luggage showed up. Everyone else's but mine. Okay? But I'm all happy Michelle's going down to get my luggage. I'm waiting. I said, oh, I'm not going to get dressed. So I'm sitting there in a towel waiting to go to breakfast. I'm like, oh, it's going to be great. Got my clothes. I've been wearing like supermarket clothes for two or three days. That wasn't fun. And and, and, and then I'm there. And, and then Michelle comes out. Oh, your luggage wasn't there. What happened at that moment can only be described as ungodly. I got mad. I went downstairs. I yelled at Joe, Pastor Joe, poor Joe. As he goes, oh, how's it going? Did you get your luggage? I'm like, that, that was, you know, that was the moment that I unleashed hell. And, uh, you know, I wasn't, very, I wasn't in a good way. You know, I wanted to go home. I'm like, why did I even come here? You see, this is what, and it was the enemy trying to get me in the flesh, which he succeeded in. But it was a blessed trip. My luggage showed up at the end of the day and all was well. But it, it, it showed me, you know, you will sometimes when you step out to serve others, you will, it will cost you something. And when it does, you have to be prepared to pay that price without grumbling. And that's a very, very great challenge for me personally. I know most of you by your responses probably would agree. So we've been called to suffer as we live our lives for him. We've been called to suffer as we live our lives for others. Paul talked a lot about that. And we've been called to follow the example that he gave us. And he gave us the example of taking up our cross losing our life for his sake and not trying to find it. And so when you compare your life to that, you're like, oh, this is the way it's supposed to be, you know. But some pastors are afraid to tell you that, and then you're surprised when it goes south. Well, that's, that's life, you know. So we suffer for Christ just as he suffered for us. That's the example And Christ suffered unjustly. Make no mistake about it. Look at verse 22. Uh, Peter quotes from Isaiah 53, verse 9 in this section, but in verse 22, he says, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. That's describing the innocence of Christ. You see, if you suffer unjustly, and it can happen, um, you could still say, well, I'm not perfect. You know, I mean, I may have done something to contribute to my suffering, but even if I didn't, you're not perfect. Christ perfect, sinless, without sin. Think about that. And he suffered more than anyone ever suffered. Put that in perspective. Quoting from Isaiah, written 700 years before Christ was born. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. He never did anything sinful or worthy of punishment. Ever, ever, ever. He never said anything hurtful. Never said anything untrue. So we should not be surprised when we also suffer unjustly. I think that's puts it in, that really puts it in perspective. Now Christ not only suffered unjustly, he endured unjust suffering. And that is what verse 23 tells us. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. We could just like take that one verse, tattoo it to the inside of my eyelid, And that would be all the Bible I would need to memorize. Right? Think about it. Not to retaliate. I mean, wait a minute. They hurled their insults at him. He didn't deserve that. If he retaliated, there's not one person in this sanctuary today who would say, oh, of course, good, get him. I was watching that movie last night, and they got one of the bad guys. My reaction is good. It is. And that guy deserved it. Christ didn't deserve this, and he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Now, his threats are promises, okay? So he didn't make any threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. I have to just pause and think about that, because that really just paints the character and the nature of Christ and his love for all mankind. And if you've seen The Passion of the Christ or any depiction of the crucifixion in recent history, you know that that is true. And again, these will be the meditations of our Good Friday service, which will be a week from this Friday here in the sanctuary at 7.30 p.m. Hopefully you'll be able to join us. Well, we should not be surprised when we also suffer unjustly. Christ endured unjust suffering. He never responded to man's injustice with anything but God's mercy, ever. Ever. He relied on God's justice, forsaking vengeance against men for their crimes. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I think about what Paul wrote in Romans in uh, chapter 12, I believe. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. (laughs) How about this one in uh, verse 17 of the same chapter? Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. How about verse 19 of that same chapter? Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. That's what it means to entrust yourself to God who judges righteously. You let God deal with it. You know, I keep talking about this, but it was such an impactful movie. Uh, There was one particular scene where Harriet Tubman prayed that God would judge her master. They show her I mean, she was was a godly woman. Her her faith in God was was, was clear and portrayed properly, I think, in this movie. But she's praying, and the master's son comes up and witnesses this. She's praying that God would deal with it. You know he's an evil man. God, deal with this person, judge judge this person, you know. And the guy died. And I think, you know, we would be better off, not wishing that people died, but we would be better off just saying, Lord, this situation is completely unjust. I'm handing it to you. May you deal with it justly and with mercy. It's hard to do. A lot easier said than done. Well, we should not be discouraged when we must endure unjust suffering. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The book of Hebrews tells us in chapter 12, verse 3. So he relied on God's justice, forsaking vengeance against men for their crimes. We need to do the same. Okay, so we do this because we follow Christ's example. We do this because we're conscious of God. We also do this because Christ suffered to save us. Christ suffered, yes, unjustly, but why did he do it? To save us. And that's what we see in verse 24. Peter says, back in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. And he goes on to say, by his wounds you have been healed. There's a lot in that verse. It's kind of a commentary on uh, Isaiah who said, by his stripes we've been healed. So, by his wounds you have been healed. So, He hung on the cross to save us from the penalty of sin. We understand that. I know we do. But let's just break it down for a minute. He made us righteous by becoming sin for us. Every sinner belongs on a cross. The Savior who hung on the cross made it possible that no sinner needs to be on a cross. See, he made us righteous by becoming sin for us. He didn't deserve the cross. And now we don't either because of what he did for us. He redeemed us, brought us back to God by becoming a curse for us, according to Paul's letter to the Galatians. We we receive his blessing because he became a curse for us. He redeemed us, became sin for us. He hung on the cross to save us from the penalty of sin. He died on the cross to free us from the power of sin. His death frees us from sin, the power of sin. Amen? We understand. It's the gospel message that he died on a cross for our sins, rose again on the third day, and is coming again to judge the living and the dead. We say that all the time, but let's break it down and think about it. Peter's saying it here. He made a way for us to die to our old life of sin if anyone is in Christ is a new creation the old is gone the new has come he's made a way for us to literally be new you see that that way for us to die to our old life of sin is only possible because of Christ's hanging on the cross because of his death on the cross and that's why I say he himself it says he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins. When we're baptized, we put you in the water. That represents a death to sin in the sinful way of life. We pull you out of the water because we don't want to go to jail. No, we pull you out of the water because we want to represent new life in Christ. We put you in, we pull you out. It's a symbol of what Christ did for you, not what we do for you. So that we might die to sins And live for righteousness. Now let's let's just think about that for a minute. He's made a way where there was no way. He made a way for us to die to our old life of sin. He made a way for us to live a new life of righteousness. I think baptism is the beautiful picture of that. A literal picture of what that means. He suffered on the cross to heal us of the consequences of sin. Because sin has consequences. And isn't it a good thing? People will sometimes say, well, God's not going to save you from the consequences of sin. No, 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 no. God will sometimes allow us to experience the consequences of sin, but let's be clear a large percentage of the consequences of sin we are delivered from. If we're going to be honest with ourselves, there are many consequences to our sins, and we've probably not received the majority of the consequences of our sins. Would you agree with that statement? Now sometimes we do. Sometimes we suffer the consequences of our sin, and that's according to God's sovereign will. But it's not as if God says, well, I'll save you for heaven, I'll save you from hell, but on earth you're on your own. And we know better than that. God is merciful. Can I hear an amen? It says abounding in mercy, full of compassion, long-suffering mercy to thousands of generations that of those that love him and fear him. So let let's just put it in perspective. Yes, sometimes we experience the consequences of sin. We we can probably call that chastisement or punishment, God's discipline. But I can tell you firsthand that the majority of the consequences of my sins he took upon himself. He did. He was under no obligation to do that, but he did. And that's what I think is really brought uh, to the surface in by his wounds you've been healed. That means a lot of things. But one of the things it definitely means is that we've been healed of the consequences of our sin. Now that can be psychological, physiological, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, all of the above. You see, he was actually wounded to heal our emotional and physical wounds in this life. You know that. You know that. If you've been walking with Christ for any length of time, you know that to be true because you're not the same person you were when you gave your life to Christ. You're probably broken and messed up like every one of us. Maybe you weren't, but you probably were. And God healed you of those things. How did he do that? By his wounds you've been healed. Because of what he did on the cross, the power of the cross empowers you to say goodbye to your old life and hello to your new life, to live righteously for Christ and to die to that old sinful way of life. That's the point that Peter is making. He was wounded to heal our our emotional and physical wounds in this life. But let me say this, because I have been accused of being a Pentecostal. He was wounded to heal our spiritual wounds and our physical wounds. See, I don't want to just say, oh, just, you know, your, your spirit, the your things we can't see, you know, like, oh, your emotions, your, uh, your mind. You know, a lot of times, uh, more conservative Christians will point to that. But wait a minute, God heals us physically by his sovereign will. I believe that. I'm what you would call a charismatic. I believe all of the gifts of the spirit are for today. Okay, I do believe that, all right? I also believe that sometimes God works through suffering and sickness and death. But I know he can heal. I know it. So, by his wounds we've been healed. By his stripes we've been healed. By the the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, there is the power in Jesus and by his blood to heal us of our infirmities, our sicknesses, our physical deformities, all that we suffer with physically in this life. But probably more importantly, when you look at the grand scheme of things, are the spiritual wounds in this life. Because he was wounded to heal our spiritual wounds for the next life. So that when we stand before the presence of God, when we're made whole in our new bodies, which is the ultimate healing, can I hear an amen? We are going to be not only in our right mind, amen, not only in in perfect bodies, amen, but our spirits will be perfect. When we see him, we shall be like him. We shall see him as he is is that his will be just like him except one little thing no scars he'll bear in his body the scars of our of his love for us and our salvation for all eternity when christ is seen in heaven in the book of revelation he's seen as a lamb that had been slain he had scars in his resurrected body none of us will but he will for all eternity why why that doesn't seem fair well it's not fair it's called grace so much more than fair well, let's continue. So he was wounded to heal our emotional and physical wounds in this life and wounded to heal our spiritual wounds for the next life, all by his suffering. And then we close it up this evening in verse 25. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. And again, that's, that's a paraphrase of what Isaiah said. We've, we've, like sheep gone astray, each one of us turned to his own way. These are the things that Isaiah talked about. But Peter is taking that concept and and using that as he writes to these suffering brothers and sisters in modern-day, what's modern-day Turkey. uh, He's writing to them. He wants them to know there's hope. We do this. What is that? We submit. Why? We submit because we're conscious of God. We submit because we follow Christ's example. We submit because Christ suffered. To save us. But we also submit because Christ is our shepherd or pastor, it's the same word. He's our overseer or guardian, if you like. He's our shepherd and overseer. We were wandering through this life without any clear direction. Paul writes to the Ephesians in chapter 2 You're walking in this world, wandering in this world. It's, it, the word in Greek is meandering, walking around with no particular direction dead in your trespasses and in your sins. We were wandering through this life without any clear direction, but now we're personally directed by Christ who guides us through this earthly life. All right, one more time. Now you're all going to go out and watch this movie. One of the things that came out loud and clear in the fictionalized drama about Harriet Tubman is that before she turned to the right and to the left, she prayed to God to ask God which way to go so she wouldn't get caught. As I saw that, I thought to myself, most people would, they actually did think she might have had brain damage. Some of the people didn't understand. They, they thought she was a little touched. They didn't think that she was really in touch with God. But apparently this woman was based on the things that God did through, in and through her life. But, you know, thinking about that, stopping and praying, Lord, it, which way do we go, to the right or to the left? And we know what Isaiah said. You'll hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. She took that literally, and God directed her. We do well to do so as well. So we're now personally directed by Christ who guides us through this earthly life. He wants to be our shepherd. That's what it means to have a shepherd and to be a sheep. And we are now personally protected by Christ who guards us in this earthly life, protected and directed by Christ. You know that, right? That's why he says, why Peter says, and this is such a great encouragement to us, but also, most especially, to the first century church in what is today Turkey, uh, when, when he writes, you were like sheep gone astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. What a great encouragement. Directed by Christ who guides us through this earthly life, protected by Christ who guards us in this earthly life. Listen, We're going to get to this in chapter 5, verses 2 through 4 of this book. But for those of you who are pastors, those of you who are leaders, those of you who are discipling others and leading others, uh, shepherding others, that's what the word really means, even though it says that you've returned to the shepherd or pastor and overseer of your souls, even though some of us wear that title and some of us function in that capacity, the beauty of being a pastor or an overseer in the church Is that pastors need only point us to Jesus, and overseers need only commit us to Jesus. We are not responsible to direct or protect anyone. God may use us, but ultimately it's God who does the work. Amen? Okay, so we're encouraged, even though this was a difficult topic. When you start talking about slavery in the Bible, people get all kind of wigged out. But hopefully this has been presented in a way where you understand why it was written, how it was written, by whom it was written, and to whom it was written. Let's pray. Let's ask the Lord, and Danielle's coming up to close in one song, but let's ask the Lord to help us apply these lessons to our hearts. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you're good, that you're gracious and merciful to us. Help us to follow your example. Help us to recognize that you are the one who shepherds and guards us. Help us to remember that you suffered to save us and that we need to be conscious of you at all times. May this empower us and enable us to follow your word in this way, to submit our lives to you, to submit our, to our authority as you've placed us under them. Give us wisdom and understanding and grace. May we give our lives to you and acknowledge that you did die on the cross for our sins, that you did rise from the dead, that you were raised from the dead, and that you ever lived to make intercession on our behalf at the throne of heaven, and that you are coming again to judge the living and the dead, and to receive us into your presence. Help us to remember that truth. For any who haven't given their lives to you, may they really take the moment to consider why. Why would we not give our hearts and our lives to the God who sent his own son to die on a cross for our sins, that we might have newness of life, that we might have salvation from sin. May every heart commend themselves to you. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.